Um, why don't you all stand with me as we start to read from Luke chapter 1, and we're actually going to start um, at the beginning of this story. Like Pastor Mo said, for the next two weeks, uh, we're going to take a break from the book of Proverbs, and we're going to spend some time um, on the birth of our Savior, particularly in two songs. Um, so let's start here. Chapter 1, starting in verse 26, and I'm going to read to 56, and it says this. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a town in Galilee called Nazareth, to a virgin engaged to be, or to a virgin, engaged to a man named Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And the angel came to her and said, Greetings, favored woman. The Lord is with you. But she was deeply troubled by this statement, wondering what kind of greeting this could be. Then the angel told her, Don't be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Now listen, you will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Mary asked the angel, How can this be since I have not had sexual relations with a man? The angel replied to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. And consider your relative Elizabeth. Even she has conceived a son in her old age. And this is the sixth month for her who was called childless. For nothing will be impossible with God. I am the Lord's servant, said Mary. May it be done to me according to your word. Then the angel left her. In those days, Mary set out and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judah, where she entered Zechariah's house and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped inside her, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Then she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and your child will be blessed. How could this happen to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For you see, when the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby leaped for joy inside me. Blessed is he, or blessed is she who has believed the Lord would fulfill what he has spoken to her. And Mary said, My soul praises the greatness of the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, because he has looked with favor on the humble condition of his servant. Surely from now on all generations will call me blessed, because the Mighty One has done great things for me, and his name is holy. His mercy is from generation to generation on those who fear him. He has done a mighty deed with his arm. He has scattered the proud because of the thoughts of their heart. He has toppled the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. He has satisfied the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering his mercy to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he spoke to our ancestors. And Mary stayed with her about three months. Then she returned to her home. Let's, let's pray. Our Father, we come to you right now. Grateful that although Mary's 
situation was unique. The pronouncement of favor and blessing that you give to her aren't, Father. Those things are reserved for all of us who know just how much we need you. Help us to embrace the neediness, God, that was modeled in your son. Uh, I pray that those of us that have come here and may have felt like we don't have a reason to sing, that you would give us one as we find ourselves in this story. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Why don't you all take your seats? Um, I love music, but I'm not a great singer. Uh, so one of the things that I do love is I love to watch this show behind the music. Y'all seen that show, right? What it does is it helps us see, you know, behind every song, there's a story, right? So not each story has a song, right? There's lots of stories that we heard as kids. Uh, that haven't been turned into Disney films yet, and those ones don't have songs. But every song that you hear is more than just the beats, the music, the rhythm, the cadence. Every song is an expression of a story. It's about a surrounding situation. And when we've participated in the story, we can appreciate the song much better, right? Brian McKnight's One Last Cry got me through many a middle school heartbreak, right? Because I felt like, Brian, I know exactly what you're saying. But that same truth works in reverse. It's not just that uh, we appreciate the song because we have a shared story, but where we find a song that we like, do you know what we do? We investigate what made somebody write that song. Yeah, 13 years ago I was with them. Um, Athletes in Action in Bulgaria, uh, and it was a Sunday morning, and we walked down the street, and a 50 Cent song in the club was like playing. And you see all of these people that have no experience with anything that he talked about there, just the life here, they liked that song so much, and I was the only black guy on my team when I went there, so they asked me all the questions. They liked the song so much that they wanted to participate in the story. Every song has a story. And the reason why I bring that up is because sometimes we find ourselves in a place in life where we feel like it's hard for me to worship. And that's more than just, I come in and I don't know the words to the songs or I don't like the songs. We come in and we feel like it's hard for me to sing or to give God praise. And so we spend our time trying to drum up something inside of us, not knowing that every song has a story. So if it's hard for us to find a song in our heart, if it's hard for us to feel grateful to the Lord, maybe it's not, that you, it's not just that you haven't found the right song. Maybe it's because there's a story that you need to be um, caught up in. The reason why I say that is because um, regardless of if you're an optimist or a pessimist, I think that the natural bent of the human heart is to lead towards being discouraged. Just based on who we are and based on the world that we live in, I think that we lean or we default to discouragement. Because we know ourselves and we know our surroundings, right? We know that we're all works in progress. Yes? We know that we're not right now all that we could be 
or all that we should be. And that leads us at times to feel like, I know that I can be more than what I am, but I feel stuck and I just don't have a reason to sing as I look about, look and think about my life. But we don't just know ourselves, we know our surroundings. And we look at the world that we live in, and we know that the world that we're in could be more, it should be more, but it's not. People that have power oppress people that don't. People that have influence to change things ignore people that don't. So, so all of the stuff that we know leads us to discouragement. The author of Ecclesiastes will put it like this. Yep. The more that you know, the more that you have cause to lament. Because the more that you know how this world works, the more you find out that it's really broken. But it's not just the things that we know that rob us of being able to worship. It's the things that we don't know. It's the fear of the unknown. It's the uncertainty that exists in our life. And you and I know that when things are uncertain and we don't know how the story's going to play out, you know it's easier to worry than it is to worship. And all that I'm saying is, if that's you, if you look at your life, or if you look at your surroundings right now, and say, John, I don't know if I have a cause or a reason to worship or to sing. I'll say, you're not alone in that. Um, there's actually a song that we're going to look at here that is an expression of somebody that found themselves in the exact same place that you did. That's where we're going to be in Luke 1 as we talk about uh, worshiping, as we talk about expecting the Savior of the world to come here. Uh, we read through the passage, but Luke 1 starts off and it introduces us to this girl named Mary. Here's a little bit of background. Uh, Mary was probably a teenager at this time uh, from uh, pre-gentrified Nazareth, right? Nothing good. It was so bad that at one point when somebody said the Savior of the world came from there, some guy says, yo, can anything good come out of Nazareth? That's where she comes from. And look, verse 28 starts off and it says this. And the angel came to her and said, Greetings, favored woman. The Lord is with you, verse 29. But she was deeply troubled by the statement, wondering what kind of greeting this could be. Imagine that. An angel comes and speaks to her this present blessing of God's word. And do you know where her heart defaults to? To being troubled. To being discouraged. Knowing that she's not all that she could be or all that she should be. At this time, she was probably at the bottom of the social class because she was a woman and young. And here's what I want us to see. Before we go any further, I want you all to know this or to hang on to this truth. And that's this. God does not wait until he's finished with you to treat you like a finished product. God does not wait until He's done with His work in you to treat you like a finished product. This angel speaks this present word to her. She comes back. She knows herself. She knows her surroundings. She knows that she doesn't have the experience, the qualifications, the 
pedigree to do what it is that God has called her to do. She doubts why somebody would come to her with that kind of a blessing. And do you know what that angel does? He doubles down on what God says. Look here at verse 30. Then the angel told her, don't be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And then what he does is he goes on and he speaks. Listen, not about what God has done, not about what she has done or what she has not done. He speaks about what God is going to do in her. Ten will be statements. This will take place. This will happen. You will conceive a son. He will be named Jesus. He is going to save the world. He talks about what it is that God will do. God's work has started in her, but it's not finished. But that doesn't keep God from treating her like she is a finished product. And she replies, how is this going to take place? I haven't been with a man. I'm still young. And do you know what he does? Once again, he points her to God's ability. Look there in verse 35. Then the angel replied to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. And then he tells her this, and consider your relative Elizabeth. Even she has conceived a son in her old age. And this is the sixth month for her who was called childless, for nothing will be impossible with God. He concludes and he attacks her doubt by providing her this, this paradigm shift. Trying to help her see this look. God's promises are not based off of what you perceive to be possible. When God makes a promise, the most important question for you to ask is not, is it possible? The most important question for you to ask is, is God leading? Because if God's leading, your concepts of possibility don't matter because they don't box God in. And so here's what he does. He gives her this test case. He says, look, don't just consider who God is, but consider what he's already done. You've got a relative. You know that she's old, but she's about to have a baby. Somebody in a similar circumstance as you, who it seems impossible for this to take place. God has already done this in her life. And so what God calls Mary to do is not to try to believe him merely by sitting and reflecting on what he has done, but to go and look at somebody else that God is already at work in. Two things that I think that we draw from this introduction, and one is this. Uh, when it comes to God's blessing, and when it comes to God's favor, uh, your checkered background or your impressive resume does not matter at all. You look at this story and look at Mary and say this, how did Mary get favor with God? What did she do so that I know that I need to go and do the right thing? What was her backstory? What did she do? How did she practice? How did she spend time with the Lord? The Bible doesn't tell us any of what she did because all of it is entirely irrelevant. 
It's not about her background. It's not about what she did. It's about God's choice when it comes to God's blessing. I want you all to know this. Our backgrounds are completely irrelevant. There's nothing you can do to qualify yourself and nothing that you have done to disqualify yourself. God doesn't wait until he's done with us to treat us like finished products. Here's the next thing that we learn is this. Uh, The people that believe that God can do the impossible often find evidence in the life of somebody else. The people that really have that deep and abiding faith that God can do what he says that he will do are not people that constantly stare at themselves and look at the work that God has done in them. They are people that lift their eyes and look at what God has done elsewhere and have seen, if God can do that, then I know that he can do it for me. She becomes this test case so much so that verse 39 says this, in those days Mary set out and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judah. Mary hears this word from God. He hears about what God has done to Elizabeth and she doesn't stay in one place trying to work out her belief and her faith by herself, but she runs to go and find somebody else that God has done this And she sits with her and spends time with her. And her song, listen to this, it doesn't come until after Elizabeth speaks to her. God had already sent a divine messenger to give her this word of blessing. But it's not until she hears this word of blessing from God repeated from human lips that it really starts to sink in and she starts to sing. Church, I just want you all to hear this. Sometimes um, God's affirmation of us, the truth of God's word, doesn't sink in until we hear it from the lips of somebody else. Right? I know at times we joke in church and we'll use the phrase, you know, turn to your neighbor and say, and everybody laughs, but no. It's easy for negative self-talk to stick inside of us, but there's something special about when somebody else believes God's Word so much that they can speak it over your life. There's something about that that just sticks. And so here's what I want you to do. I literally want you to turn to the person next to you, look them in the eye, and say, God doesn't have to be finished with you to treat you like a finished product. I probably should have come up with a more pithy way to say it. Y'all like, God, is, uh, it's on the screen. Y'all, here's what I think that the point of this whole text is. Look, listen. If we know that God does not have to be finished with us to treat us like finished products, you know what that means for us? You know what that means for our worship? Excuse me. It means this. You don't have to wait for God to finish His work before you start your worship. You do not have to wait for God to finish His work before you start to worship. If you wait for Him to finish, you'll never get started. If you only trust that He will finish once He does 
you'll never get started, but you're going to be in the wrong because God always finishes what he starts. So Mary's going to have this song and her song, this praise, this worship, the way that we make this a reality in our life is that when it comes to worshiping God, there's two things. I think her song is split up into these two halves. There's these two things that we have to be mindful of when, when it comes to God. You and I have to be mindful of God's character, and we have to be mindful of God's conduct. Who He is and what it is that He does. Who He is first, verse 46 to 30. It says, or 46 to 50, it says this, And Mary said, My soul praises the greatness of the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. You see that deep praise. She's, she's got this, this internal praise, so much so that she'll say, my soul and my spirit are praising God. It's this internal praise that can't be shaken by external circumstances because it's rooted in unchangeable characteristics of God. When it comes to God's greatness, there's nobody that's going to rise the ranks that's going to unseat Him. So that's a great place for you to invest your praise because you can deposit your praise in God's greatness and never risk not drawing out a return. And she's saying, my soul, that it's this deep and abiding worship and, and praise and the greatness of God and God, her Savior. She goes on and says this, because he has looked with favor on the humble condition of his servant. Surely from now on, all generations will call me blessed. Now, it kind of sounds as if she's saying, I'm praising God because of the circumstance that he gave for me. That's not what she's saying. For her to say that would be self-centered. For her to say that would be for her to exalt herself. Surely from now on, everybody that sees me is going to treat me as some special class of person, right? But that's not what she's saying as we go on. Look at what it's rooted in. She says, yo, I'm praising God. I'm grateful that he looked with favor on the humble condition of his servant. Surely from now on, all generations will call me blessed. Why? Because the mighty one has done great things for me and his name is holy. What she's saying is, surely from now on, generations are going to call me blessed, but the blessing's going to come not because they look at me and put me on a pedestal, but the blessing's going to come because every time they think about me, they're going to think about you, God. She sees her life and God's blessing. She sees herself not as a cul-de-sac for God's blessing. Not as God's blessings are going to terminate in making much of me, but a roadway that every time somebody travels down these scriptures through the road of Mary, it's going to lead them to praise the greatness of God. And that's what she's saying. That her life, what she's going to be remembered for, is going to point to God. And that's the best use that she feels like she could have of her life. And that's the best use that any of us could have of our life. Forty-six, forty-seven, forty-eight, forty-nine, all singular. Right? 
I'm blessing God because of His greatness. My God. My, my Savior. I praise Him because He's done great things for me. And it seems as if Mary's just singing a song about herself, but then she gets to verse 50 and is highlighting the character of God and she says this, His mercy, God's mercy, is from generation to generation, not just on me, but to those who fear Him. So what she's saying is she starts off and she sings this song, then she gets down to verse 50 and she says, everybody sing along. Everybody jump in. Here's the character of God. God has reserved His help, listen, not just for people that need Him, because everybody needs Him. She's saying God has reserved His help and His mercy, not just for people that need Him, but for people that know that they need Him. Those are not the same thing. Those are world apart. The question that you would ask is this, how do I know if I'm the kind of person that knows that I need God? Here's one way that you can know. When God's blessings do come, what does your heart say? Does your heart say, Lord, why me? Or does your heart say, well, it's about time? If you say, well, it's about time you've done something, God. And that testifies to a heart, not that knows that they need God, but expects God to work for their agenda and is frustrated when he doesn't do things according to plan. But a heart that knows that they need him, that's completely hopeless without him. When God does bless, when God does preserve, when God does come and speak to us in unexpected ways, what we do is we step back and say, why me? Because I know I don't have the background, the pedigree, the qualifications, the worth, the track record. God, why me? So what she says is this, you know, I'm praising God because I know His character. God reserves His help not just for the needy, but for those that know that they need Him. And so what she's saying is, as long as I know that I need Him, everybody that stays in a constant place, every generation that knows of their great need for God can have a reason to sing and a reason to worship and a reason to experience. But I don't think that's the most important thing of this song. That's just the intro. God's conduct, is, or his, his, his character is one thing, but then she goes on and starts to talk about God's God's conduct, 51 to 56. Um, when I was in school, uh, they had these things called conduct reports. Did you all have that? Right, where each week the teacher would send a report on what John did, how he behaved, so that your mom and your dad would see that. I was a good kid in school, but I sat in uh, class with, with certain kids that weren't so good. Uh, and what you found out was that like the weeks would go by and there would be some times that uh, somebody in my class would get a conduct report to take home, and it would be long, and I would say in my head, uh, teacher, I don't think that you wrote all of that out just now. I think that you already knew how it was that they would behave, so you started early and you wrote that because you knew, based on their track record, you could write 
their bad conduct to report in advance, and it would be true. As Mary's praising God, here's what she's doing. So I'm going to read this, and it may be a little confusing. As she writes this, uh, she's writing all of this in the future tense, praising God in advance for what it is that he will do. But all the verbs that she's going to use are past tense. Right? Why is she going to use past tense? Because in her mind, it's already as good as done. I know God's conduct. I know how he conducts himself. So I can speak of future events in the past tense because if God starts on this road, he's going to do it. And it starts off and it says this, look. He has done a mighty deed with his arm. He has scattered the proud because of the thoughts of their heart. He has toppled the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. He has satisfied the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering his mercy to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he spoke to our ancestors. We can start our praise with God even when he has not finished his work if we'll remember not just God's character that he helps those that know they have a need of him, but if we remember his conduct, what it is that he has done. So here what she does is she spends her time talking about God's actions, not ours. He has, he has, he has. Seven action verbs here all related to what God has done. And not just that God has done, it's not just about God's actions, but what she specifically brings out is this. God acts differently to different types of people. You see it all split up? Right? God has. He's done a mighty deed with His arm. He scattered the proud because of their thoughts. You know, it takes us back to Genesis chapter 11, when God tells the world to go and to fill the face of the earth, and we get this little story of Babel, where there's a group of folks that say, we don't want to spread over the face of the earth. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to build a tower with its tops in the heavens, so that we can make a name for ourselves. And do you know what God does? God comes down and scatters them. Look, He has toppled the mighty, from their throne, she's thinking that the Savior of the world is going to come from Jesus Christ. And what he's going to do is he's going to bring God's kingdom to the earth. And what that means is that he's going to unseat every ruler. But in the same way that God topples the mighty, here's what God does. He doesn't just comfort. He doesn't just identify. He doesn't just cry with those that are oppressed. But the Bible promises that one day as Christ comes into the world, he's going to exalt those that are lowly. He's acting different ways to two different types of people. Look, the people that are hungry are going to find satisfaction, but the people that are wealthy, that trust in their wealth, are going to find nothing but emptiness. And all of this is God's doing. The revelation of God's character is this, that God is a God that doesn't ignore those that are poor, distraught, downcast. God cares for them. God doesn't ignore those that come in and feel 
empty on the inside. God cares in a special way. If you're here right now and you feel like I don't have a hope in the world, I don't have a lifeline, I'm depressed, I can't seem to get out of it, I feel all alone, I want you to know you're not alone. The testimony of Scripture is that God cares for those that are needy. The testimony of the Bible is this. God is a God that saves, but God is a God that saves, and hear how He does save, through judgment. So you go through the storyline of the whole Bible, and what you're constantly going to see is that God is going to save people by judging certain people. Right? We saw it in what we read here. Adam and Eve found themselves guilty of sin. In need of salvation. And what does God say? God tells them, I'm going to send a son into the world to save you, but his coming into the world is going to mean judgment for the serpent that fooled you. Israel found themselves enslaved to Egypt, and God says, I'm going to save them, but I'm going to judge the all throughout the Bible, God is opposing the proud people that are trying to exalt themselves, and God is giving grace to the humble. And it's good news for all of us that know that we're needy, but it's good news that's complicated as best for us. Because as humans in our heart, we're conflicted. And here's what I mean by that. We're conflicted because God has reserved His help for those that are lowly, humble, needy, poor, without honor. And you and I, as people, do all that we can to avoid being in that situation. Our hearts are prone to wander, to stray, to view that not as a blessing, but as a curse. We want to be full and exalted, honored. We don't want to serve, we want to lead. We use our words, right, not to make much of God, but even in conversation, we Sometimes we use our words to make much of ourselves. So we find a way, even in conversations, to like slip in an accomplishment that we have done that has nothing to do with what we're talking, talking about en route to saying something. We find ourselves fishing for compliments in conversation. We constantly find ourselves working to make sure that we're not in a place where we have to depend and, and be needy on God. We live our lives craving after independence. And do you see how this good news becomes complicated in sinful hearts? Is that we spend our time running from the very thing that God says brings blessing. So, so what does this mean for us? Here's the good news of Christmas, and here's the good news of why Mary sings this song is because in the person of Jesus Christ, 
what we see is that it's not that God acts differently to two different types of people. It's that in the person of Christ, what we see is that God acts differently. God acts two different ways to the same person. Here's what I mean by, by that. What God will often do, and we've seen it in our lives for those of us that have put our faith and trust in him, is we found ourselves in seasons where we were running from God, trying to establish independence, trying to find our worth and significance in a bunch of things. And do you know what God will do? He'll frustrate all of those things and humble us and make us feel our need for him. But then after we feel our need for him, do you know what he'll do? He'll satisfy that very need that we saw. So he doesn't just judge us and discard us. He humbles us so that we become aware of the fact that we need him. And then he comes and satisfies that need. Look, this is the testimony of the Bible thus far. This is why Christmas is such a huge thing. This is why Mary herself is singing this song because this nation of people knew the promise that God made in Genesis 3.15 that one day he was going to send somebody into the world to crush Satan and they expected this strong, this mighty king to rise up and come out of nowhere. They didn't care much about his backstory. They just wanted to see somebody appear strong to take care of their foes. And do you know what God does? God, who is completely full, self-sufficient, never been hungry, never lacked a thing, He willingly gave up all the stuff that you and I try to chase. And Jesus came into the world as a baby, hungry, needy, lowly, not exalted. And he didn't just come that way into a family that could give him the best of things. Jesus came into the world like that, into a family that was humble, that was lowly, that was needy, that was not exalted. Jesus spends his life lowly, hungry, needy. He goes to his death hungry, lowly, needy. But the whole way, he's constantly dependent on God. The whole way, as his work is being done, the God, he is in such perfect fellowship with God that God is still relating to him as if he's finished and completed. His work. And we see his neediness does not keep him from contributing to our needs. His being aware of his dependence on God so much so that while everybody else is asleep, he's getting up praying. His, 
his awareness of the way that he needs God, so much so that the night before he goes to the cross, people are sleeping and he's praying. That made him the perfect, the complete, the most helpful person for you and I. Because in his life, we see a model of what the end of the story looks like for somebody who spends their whole story depending on God. And we are reminded by Christ's own words in John chapter 17, Jesus prays that we would come to believe because of his work that the same love that God has for him, God has for us. Which means this, God has no favorite children which means that if God did this for His Son, Jesus went to the cross and died and rose so that you and I would have the confidence to know that our story can end up like His. And with that confidence, we're reminded, look, God doesn't have to finish His work in us for us to start our worship. Christmas is a season of testimony. It's a season where we sit back and reflect on the amazing things that God has done. And the reason why we don't have to wait for God to finish before we start our worship is that God never changes up what He does. If He's done it in the past, He's going to do it in the future. We can bank on it and expect it. So what that does is it changes how you and I relate to people. Last Sunday I was... Um, at at home, and a, a dear friend and a brother of mine came, and he just started to talk um, and share about his story. There was a period in uh, his life where he just felt so far gone, like there was nothing that God can do. And we sat there, and for an hour he just sat and talked about how, yo, John, listen, it was so bad that it's like I couldn't bring anything to the table. And he's like, and God really hit me, not with the depression, not with the suicidal thoughts, but here's how God hit me. I feel like he took sleep from me. So he's like, so for months, I can't sleep. And I'm at a place where it's like, I really cannot do anything. And in that neediness, what he did was he cried out for help. He found himself back in a community of Christians and he said, John, uh, I always knew about the gospel. But when I found myself in a group of people, it was hearing God's words through them that really made it sink in. It was feeling God's love through them that made it sink in. And he's like, and it made sense. And that story leads me to praise God, not for myself, but for what He did in Him. But then that story leads me to hope in God, not for Him, but for me. Because I'm reminded that if God would do that in the life of somebody that I felt was so far off, then what that means is that I'm never too far gone. I want you to know, you don't have to wait for God to finish His work you to start your worship his character is firm it's fixed he's reserved his help for people that know that they need him 
And his conduct is this. In all of our interactions, none of us get the short end of the stick with God. Either we're low and we know that we need him, or we're puffed up with pride and he makes us low to know that we need him, but then he satisfies our needs. So what do we do when we feel like, John, I hear all of what you say, I know that that's true, but I feel like nothing has changed for me right now. What do I do? And here's what I think that we do. Um, I think we keep our eyes open and our throats warm. Here's what I mean. Believing the promises of God are fueled by beholding or seeing the faithfulness of God often in the lives of other people. Are you drowning in disbelief or depression right now? I'd say open your eyes. Now's not the time to look at yourself. Now's not the time to be extra spiritual and to say, I'm just going to look to God or I'm just going to look in his word, although I think that does help. You may be saying, it's hard for me to worship John because I just don't see God doing in me what I hope that he would do in me. And I would say, so what? What does that have to do with your ability to worship? God often works clearer in the lives of somebody else than he does in your own life to get our eyes off of ourselves, to look and to see his faithfulness there, and then to be reminded that God doesn't have any favorite children. Look at somebody else. There's not a day that goes by now that somebody comes to our daughter and says, man, she's just grown. Do you think she knows that? No. Me and Chandra barely see it. But sometimes other people can see things better in us than we can see in ourselves. I want you to know, keeping, keeping your eyes open has everything to do with staying close, staying hinged, staying tethered to a community where every face, every heart, every story is a canvas of God's faithfulness. Are you struggling to believe that God can work, that He will work? Get out of your head and get into somebody else's heart. Talk to them about what God has done. Ask them. If you're at a place where you've seen and you've been blessed to see the amazing things that God has done for you, don't keep it to yourself. Keep your throats warm. Be ready to sing like Mary. Not I'm so blessed because God helped me get out of debt. I'm so blessed because all of what God has done for me. It's not about you boasting in what God has done for you. It's about you boasting in the God that has done that thing. So that as people see you, they're motivated to praise God. We're in a world that will rob us of our worship. Our surroundings do not seem to be getting any better. We are in a world where we are works in progress. There's times where it feels like we're not getting any better. But that doesn't have to stop our worship of God. Because He doesn't wait until He's finished with us to treat us like He is. So you don't have to wait until He's finished to start your worship. Keep your eyes open. 
keep your throats warm. And you find a story that will motivate you to sing, or you share your story so that it will motivate somebody else to sing. And what you'll find is that a singing community, a community that's full of joy and worship, is an inspiring community. Joy's contagious, y'all. And it's not reserved for those who are aware of God's work in their life. It's often found in those that can get out of their own head and be so aware of the work that God has done in somebody else's life that it leads them not to be jealous, but to be joyful. Because we know that God has no favorite children. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the joy that comes as we put our eyes on Christ and those that He has changed. Father, I pray if there's any of us in here that feel like we're drowning, like we don't have a reason to sing, Father. We don't have a reason to be fully content in You. Would You remind us of Your faithfulness in the lives of people? And would You keep us expectant, knowing that Your conduct doesn't change. Make us those that are full of hope, Father, as we are reminded that the birth of our Savior brought that hope here into the world. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.